Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some of the recent conversations we've had on JM in the AM. Abe Foxman, longtime director of the ADL and somebody who had a remarkable story of survival during World War II as a child. He joined us on Erev Tishabov to tell his story and to focus on uh, some of the things we always think about this time of year. Abe Foxman, a recent guest of ours on JM the AM right here on JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. Abe Foxman is with us live via telephone, really for two reasons that we have him on today, Erev Tishabov. Number one, he's chairing this uh, amazing initiative for Holocaust survivors with the Met Council on Jewish Poverty. You know that we are big fans of Met Council, its leader, uh, David Greenfield. They're amazing staff and volunteers, and now, and they've always helped Holocaust survivors, but now they're really stepping things up, and we'll talk about that campaign in just a few minutes. Also, it's Erev Tishabov. We focus uh, this week, and specifically as we get closer and closer to Tishabov, on the tragedies in the history of the Jewish people. Mr. Foxman, Abe Foxman, is, of course, a survivor, a World War II survivor. His parents uh, were survivors, um, and um, he has a unique story. I, I, not unique in that we haven't heard similar stories, but unique in that when you hear it, I'm sure you'll agree, uh, it is quite a unique tale for uh, a modern Jewish history. And uh, he, and that is the reason, uh, those are both the, of the reasons why we felt this was the perfect week to speak with him as so many of us focus on the tragedies of the Jewish people, even the modern day ones. Uh, Abe Foxman, uh, National Director of the Anti-Defamation League from 1987 to 2015, currently the uh, National Director Emeritus. Four years ago, he became Vice Chair of the Board of Trustees at the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York City to continue his efforts uh, to fight anti-Semitism. Abe Foxman, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's good to be with you. A pleasure to speak with you, and I'm so glad and thankful that you decided to uh, accept our offer to join us this morning on this uh, Erev Tishabov. Um, I mean, essentially the story is that uh, your parents left you uh, after you were born with your Polish Catholic nanny, um, and then after the war, once they survived, they came to get you. Is that an accurate summary of the first four or five years of your life? More or less. Yeah, the word left me is a little bit too stark. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, it, it basically that's the, the, that's the outline. Um, my parents lived in Warsaw when the war broke out. And uh, some people stayed, some people moved. They decided to move east, uh, where my father came from, which was Baranovich. And that's where I was born. Um, they had a nanny for me. Um, and as the Germans were moving east, uh, my parents also decided to move further east. And so the four of us um, moved and the Germans caught up with us in the city of Vilna, capital of Lithuania, in 1941. At that time, when the Germans issued orders for all Jews to be assembled in the ghettos, um, my parents made uh, the most difficult decision of their life, which uh, turned out to be the most serious beneficial one, because indirectly it not only saved my life, but saved their lives. And so my nanny said to them, listen, uh, this is only going to last a couple of weeks. You go, I'll take care of him, and you come back, we'll be here. Well, the couple of weeks turned out to be four years. But uh, the decision 
which my parents could never, never, Nathan, never explain to me. I would always say to them, see, you gave me away. And uh, hmm. it was it's an irrational decision for parents to make, but it was a decision um, that I get also with miracles because you don't survive just by by man's decisions alone. Right. But they were able to fend for themselves, knowing that their purpose is to come back to me. Um, family units of three with an infant, the chances of survival were minus zero. I'm not even sure they understood all of that. So it was beshert, it was a miracle, it was... Um, and then, you know, um, when they, my mother escaped from the ghetto, my father was liberated, came looking for me, we, they found each other. My nanny basically said, I saved him, he belongs to me in the Catholic Church. And uh, they tried every which way to make us a family. Uh, it didn't work. Eventually, they had to go to trial. It was the first custody battle and occupied and liberated with the Soviets called liberated uh, territories. The court ruled I belonged to my parents. Uh, we were then repatriated. The Soviets permitted people who became refugees during the war to go back to places from whence they came as long as it was in their empire. We were repatriated to Poland. She was Polish, so she was repatriated as well. I was kidnapped. My parents kidnapped me back, and uh, eventually we smuggled our way to the American zone in Austria or in DP camps for several years and then came to the United States. So wow. that's the essence of, of the story. Unbelievable. Abe Foxman with us. You know, it's interesting. We were discussing here yesterday uh, in preparation for this conversation, what what that was like? D- did the nanny just cooperate with your parents, etc.? It actually went to trial, and one would suspect that you know, e- even with the sympathies, you know, immediately post-war for the victims, um, one would still suspect that in an official trial, uh, it, it, you know, we, we would think the decision would go against the Jewish parents. Uh, they must have been surprised when when officially they were awarded your custody. Well, it, it, it's hard. It's hard to say. We have to remember this was the communist regime, the Soviets. There were also issues. She um, she went to the Soviets and said my father survived because he collaborated. They arrested him. Mm. Uh, then they let him go. Then she went again and said he was working for a factory that he steals. They arrested him a second time, a third time. Now she still brought the KGB. They arrested him a third time. So the Soviet authorities basically said to my parents, we have no time for these games. You have to, you know, litigate it. And they did. Now, there were two tri- There was a trial and two appeals. And um, the record that she abused the system was also part of it. And at the end where she said, well, she was really, she had no proof that I was hers, right. et cetera. She was saving a soul for the Catholic Church. And it fell on deaf ears to the Soviets. So in the context of the time and the place and, you know, right. uh, it, it was, although my parents did have a, you know, a good Jewish lawyer uh, <laughs> who argued my case, who eventually, he became a professor of Russian at Brandeis. And many years later, I met him to thank him uh, in Boston, but uh, Dimitrovsky was his name. Did you did you ever, as an older child or as an adult, meet up with your nanny? 
No, that's one of the open questions still. I have no closure. I never said thank you to her. Is she considered uh, a righteous Gentile? Um, in, in my definition, absolutely. In Yad Vashem's definition, probably not. Wow. Because my mother provided for us, which you know she provided food. And right. She she stole and smuggled. So from that perspective, I I don't think Yadrashem would uh, recognize her as a righteous. But there's no question in my mind, she risked her life every single day uh, for four years because I was circumcised and she had no papers and she had no records. And she would always make sure that we always we ran from time to time from the neighbors. So um, now uh, at the end, you know what motivated her? Who knows what motivated her? Her humanity and and, and I guess her faith. Um, but no, I, I I am still I'm trying to find a place of her burial. Uh, it's not in Poland. I'm not trying through the authorities. In, uh, in Belarus to find out maybe she can went back to Belarus and that's where she passed away. Wow. I would like to I would like to find a grave. I would like to come and and bring closure by at least saying thank you. You know, close to close to her being, but I never was able to. Amazing. Abe Foxman is with us. We'll talk about the initiative with the Met Council. Uh, there are a couple other things in terms of history on this era of Tisha B'Av that I want to review with you. I'm not asking this for the sensationalism. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to set up a, a, another conversation. Uh, it, it sounds like, from what I've read, you were a good practicing Catholic child. Would that be accurate? Yes. Yeah, that's, and, that was part <laughs> And the reason I say it like that, and we'll get to the transition about learning about your Judaism in a minute, but I could only imagine, and, and you can, if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong, but I can only imagine that 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 experience had to have helped when you went into your professional career in this country in terms of relationships with not not relationship meaning oh you know guys I was one of you at one time I don't mean it like that just in terms of understanding the mentality of people who are not Jewish understanding how their religion and their attitudes work toward others I would have to imagine that all of that was helpful in your career am I right nobody really knows uh you know, people say you survive so you can do so and so. That's that's almost arrogance. I don't. I don't. I I would say I was lucky, lucky in the sense that I was given a platform and an opportunity in my adult life uh, to deal with um, two elements which were so so important um, in my in my growing up. One was hate, and the other was love. Right. You know, the, the hatred which was all around us, the anti-Semitism, which which was the, the which brought about part of the Holocaust, and and the love of a woman who, despite what happened at the end, uh, acted at the highest level of humanity, risking one's life for somebody else. Right. So yeah, I I was fortunate. I don't know to what extent. Um, you know, it, it motivated me in what I did, but but certainly I was fortunate that I could deal with both elements, fight the hate and embrace the love. People, you know, there's always had this, you know, this is why you became, and then my answer would be, you know, God bless doctors, all of them, but why does somebody become a proctologist? Man. Who knows? Man. You know, very based. Um, I don't know. All I know is I say, Baruch Hashem, thank God, I had the good fortune um, the miracle to survive, but also to be able to try to make a difference in, in the elements 
that so shaped my first five, six years of my life. And ma- many people, especially those in my generation and older, uh, you know, were, were, are very familiar uh, with your work, uh, your career at the ADL. Is there a way for you to describe the hate that you're referring to, the hate that you know was all over Europe and, you know, it, it was so around you as you described it growing up and then, you know, and 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 obviously many victims in our global community of that hate. And then, of course, the hate that you had to deal with here uh, when you were consulted and when you were approached when hateful statements were made, when groups gathered uh, you know, saying certain things and doing certain things and publicizing certain things. Ha- have have you been able to crystallize what this hate is all about? Why people, why certain people have this terrible animosity towards certain others? I guess if we, if there was an answer, if I had the answer to your question, then we could eliminate it. Um, the answer is we don't. And all these years, uh, especially anti-Semitism, for me, is a virus without an antidote, without a vaccine. Um, yeah, we can, we can analyze reasons, the forces, the elements. Um, but there is, I guess part of the trouble is there is no one reason. Uh, Mark Twain, many, many years ago, um, when he went on a trip to Europe, to give a lecture tour, it was in the 1890s, um, came back and wrote an essay concerning the Jews. And uh, he found that wherever he went, he found anti-Semitism. And he found it with smart people and stupid people, rich people and poor people, religious people and um, an atheist. And then he came and wrote an essay, and he came to a conclusion that it was jealousy. Uh, that the reason for anti-Semitism is a jealousy of the Jewish people because of their smarts, because of their creativeness, tenacity, faith, whatever it is. Uh, The truth is, uh, yeah, that's one of the reasons. We don't know. Uh, I I guess to to some extent I I come to the conclusion that people have a need uh, to blame others, uh, to explain away whoever they they are aren't. And there there probably is a need um, to hate. Uh, now the antidote, the antidote that the only antidote we have is education. Right. Education is a very slow process. Mm-hmm. You can infect a child in, in nanoseconds to hate, but to unlearn it is a is a very very tedious uh, process, and and that's that's a serious problem uh, because it's much quicker to to be infected, and as we know with this virus that we're <laughs> fighting for now. How difficult it is to undo it. Recovery from these viruses are hard, whether it's a physical one or whether it's the one we're discussing of anti-Semitism. Abe Foxman is with us. One more thing on this. uh, I know we have to talk about the initiative and we will get to it, but I'm so fascinated by some of the challenges you've had during your career. Um, I can imagine that you you were put in certain situations where you had to make decisions and come out with statements. Not everybody always was happy with with some of the approaches and some of the stands you had to take, which I get, not a criticism, just an observation. And I'm I'm sure, you know, when you when you released a certain statement or took a certain stand, I'm sure half the Jewish community loved it and half the Jewish community didn't. <laughs> I get the whole thing. Uh, and your successor, frankly, I believe, is also going through some really difficult challenges right now as well. With that in mind, 
What do you think of the whole cancel culture? Our our position here has always been, including when I worked at a terrestrial radio station for decades, that we don't call for boycotts of anybody because we never want anyone calling for a boycott of us. Uh, essentially, uh, that's what's happening right now, as we see, as so many uh, people, concepts, uh, um, uh, statues of history, etc., are being canceled, are being eliminated, in a sense, being boycotted. Uh, and I'm sure there have been many times where you thought during your career that, that it would be an appropriate response to boycott a certain company, to boycott a certain government, uh, to boycott certain people who say certain things or march uh, in protest of certain things or in demonstration of certain things. H- how do you balance that? At what point do you say to yourself, now is the right time to call for a boycott, to call for you know, canceling out or the attempt to cancel out somebody uh, and balance that with, you know what, we as Jewish people have been the victims of boycotts for centuries. It, it, it is unwise for us to use that approach. Uh, Nachum, I, I still believe it's unwise. It's interesting. Uh, there's a boycott now uh, called by the chief rabbi of Britain. Um, I know, I've, I've never called for a boycott. I think the threat of boycott is more effective than a boycott. Uh, boycott sometimes um, hurt people you don't intend to hurt, don't right. necessarily bring about um, the the resolution that you want. And as you said, we we are susceptible to a boycott. We we are vulnerable. Uh, we're a minority. We have been boycotted for nothing. So right. we certainly don't want to legitimize. So no, I have always maintained that that's not the vehicle. Um, to use, but, you know, different people, different times. Uh, you know. Today, as you say, we're in a cancel culture, and right. a cancel culture, part of it is you boycott somebody, you boycott right. them, I guess you could want to erase them, erase who they are and what they do. And there, too, I um, I had the opportunity to confront bigots, um, and uh, I, I always believe, Nathan, that, uh, Nahum, that, um, <laughs> If you want to change people's minds and hearts, you need to provide for them a, a an avenue, a vehicle, an opportunity uh, to change their minds. Otherwise, why bother? So, you know, once if you're a bigot, you can never be an unbigot. You can never repent. You can never, then why bother trying to, 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 to change people's minds and hearts? And I don't know. Um, and, and that's I, maybe you, you know better than I don't know whether the concept of to err is um, human, to forgive is divine, is is Jewish or non-Jewish, but I, I believe in it. Um, and so the cancel culture doesn't achieve very much. It may make somebody feel good that they that they eliminated somebody, but in the long run, uh, we will all uh, you know suffer the loss, whether it's somebody that's creative or. or business, whatever. So no, that doesn't mean that I've always been successful, but I've always tried with bigots to see whether or not um, there's a there's an avenue to, to, to turn them around. Communication is the key in so many areas of life, and it seems that you are, <laughs> that you're fully endorsing that approach. <laughs> Communicating, t- sitting down and talking, it's, it's a really good approach, and the older I get, the more I realize that. Yeah, absolutely. It's not the easiest approach, right. but it's it's the most meaningful in terms of, of people living together. 
You're, you've essentially been introduced uh, recently, and there have been news stories about it, as the chair of this new initiative. I don't know if officially you're the chair, but uh, it's certainly uh, <laughs> the impression is that you are. Uh, of This initiative for the Met Council on Jewish Poverty, a Holocaust survivor initiative. Now, now full disclosure, not only are we big fans of, of the current administration at Met Council, uh, we also have a connection there, which I think a lot of people know about, but they are doing amazing work. And uh, it, it must be something for you to see someone come in like David Greenfield and essentially rebuild an organization that was going through some very tough challenges. Oh, absolutely. It's it's an essential organization for the city, for our community. And after it, it suffered uh, terrible tragedies and setbacks, um, David is unique. And, you know, people say to me, why are you doing this? Why are you, at your age, are you taking on another <laughs> responsibility? Well, one of my answers is, uh, first of all, it is who I am. <laughs> I am a survivor. And right. so... You know, but but then you don't. You have to know David Greenfield. Uh, it's very very difficult to say no to David. And so when David reached out and said, "Listen, um, the pandemic has uh, revealed something that we knew, but not to the extent that we thought we knew, and that is the vulnerability." Yeah, a lot of people are vulnerable, and poor people are vulnerable, and elderly people are vulnerable. But Holocaust survivors are vulnerable of the vulnerable because. Um, they are uh, not able, many of them, to go to soup kitchens. They have, many of them have needs for kosher food. And so we have this special need um, now, and that is to feed as many Holocaust survivors as we can. And right. he said to me, Nate, you need to leave this. Uh, I said, you know, how do you, again, as I, how do you say no to him? <laughs> and also understanding, uh, understanding, what hunger is. Um, in, in this whole area of Holocaust survivors, um, there's a lot that we cannot do for them. There, you know, there's a lot we cannot heal or repair their traumas, their memories, their pain. Their, but, there, but this is an opportunity to able to do something. Um, you know, the one thing that is within our power is to make sure that they never go hungry again. And so, uh, if, you know, if I can help in keeping uh, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 uh, survivors not have to worry about that pain of hunger again, then how can I say that? And so is, is equipped. So that, you know, they, they have the facilities, they have the know-how, right. they, have their, they have their staff. And so now with Uber, um, which will help us deliver um, the food, uh, we have volunteers in addition to professionals. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a needed challenge, an exciting challenge. And for me, it's almost like, um, you know, ending the circle. I started a survivor, and so what am I doing now? Trying to make the, you know, the days of survivors a little bit better and a little bit easier. Um, All the information is at metcouncil.org. Everybody out there, we are encouraging you on this era of Tisha to take something upon yourself to help the Holocaust survivors. Abe Foxman chairs the initiative for Met Council. Again, it's metcouncil.org. You'll see it all there in the news section. has articles about uh, Abe and taking on this uh, cause. Uh, Met Council, very organized website. You'll be able to see all the different projects they have in general, but the Holocaust Survivor Initiative obviously is our focus this morning. And Abe, not to get too personal, 
but I don't think you'll mind me mentioning this if it's uh, uh, going to you know, get the point across to everybody. Uh, you now at the age of 80 being a child survivor, uh, it's essentially those who are between 80 and 100 years old, right, that final generation uh, that we are now helping. This is this, and, and imagine the key demographic that I'm describing. I mean, in general, uh, people in their ninth and tenth decades in this country, um, you know, many of them are impoverished. Many of them are going hungry. Um, you know, certainly uh, those who are Holocaust survivors, uh, there are plenty of people in that category going through the same thing. So it's really a, a, a I don't want to say a final opportunity, but but certainly a significant opportunity to help people in a very sensitive age group who've gone through a lot and who are, as Met Council can show us statistically, who are in many cases literally impoverished and hungry. Yeah, so it's an opportunity for doing another mitzvah. Yeah. It's a very important mitzvah. It's very direct. It's very clear. It has direct impact. can make a difference. So, yeah, it's, uh, again, I feel privileged to have that opportunity. Yeah. Uh, everybody out there, just as an example, for $1,000, uh, 330 elderly survivors will receive a meal tonight, obviously. Uh, we say that generically. Tonight is obviously the start of Tisha B'Av. Uh, six weekly food deliveries for $330, for $110, two weekly food deliveries, and you could actually provide 12 nourishing meals for elderly survivors for just $36. All the information at metcouncil.org, metcouncil.org. Mr. Foxman, you know there's one more topic I must address with you because the basic staple during the regular year for the last 37 years of this program is Jewish music, and there is a song that we have played very, very often that you actually have uh, have a role in or something to do with. Um, the song is called A Man from Vilna, and it's a song I actually uh, contacted A.B. Rottenberg this week just to make sure I had the real story right because the song has a little bit of composer license in it. Uh, and essentially it was a Rabbi Goldman, who's the grandfather of someone who actually lives in this neighborhood, a Rabbi Goldman who, um, uh, who uh, was, a, if I have it right, a member of the Soviet Army, a Jewish member of the Soviet Army uh, who was involved in liberating the camps and came to Vilna Simchus Torah, which I assume was 1945. Is that the is that the right start to the story? Yeah, uh, you you are right. Um, what happened first? My how I how I well. So the story is, my father of Shalom was a lot wiser than I ever understood when I was growing up, and um, he was very very sensitive in bringing me back. To Yiddishkeit, you know, uh, on our halacha, on our tradition, once a Jew, always a Jew. Right. Uh, so I didn't have to go through anything. I was mild, I was circumcised, so there, that was it. Um, but there was a process of, I used to go to church, I used to spit on Jews. Um, so um, when we lived together, even during the time of the trials, um, my father, step by step, introduced me to Yiddishkeit. Uh, I used to wear a uh, crucifix. Uh, wow. My father placed it with a talus cotton. For a child of five and six, um, as long as I knew I need something, I, I wear something on my body that brings me closer to God, it really didn't matter whether it was a cross or whether it was a talus cotton, um, as long as I had something that... Right. You know, Connecting you. God, connected me to God. Right. I would say my prayers every night in Latin hmm. uh, to, to Borgia. 
My father taught me the Shema. And, you know, I didn't understand Latin. I didn't understand Hebrew. It didn't make a difference. But I knew that every night before I go to sleep, I pray uh, to Borja, to God. Um, and so uh, everything was done in a, in a very um, gradual process. The first time my father took me to shul uh, was on Simchas Torah. Now, you can imagine Simchas Torah after the war, after all the destruction and the death, etc. So, and, and yet it was it was a Simchas Torah in, in the great synagogue of Vilna. Right. On the way to Shul, I passed the church, I dropped my father's hand, I crossed myself, I met a priest, I dropped my father's hand, I kissed the hand of the priest, and off we went uh, to Shul. Um, in synagogue, I met, um, we met, there was a Soviet officer who approached my father and said to, asked him whether I was Jewish. And my father said yes. And he said he traveled thousands of kilometers and um, during the war, and he did not see a Jewish child alive. Wow. And could he take me and dance with me? Um, and, you know, as, a, as, a, as if Simcha uh, right. and my father said yes. Right. And so, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I came home and I said to my nanny, I like the Jewish church. Sing <laughs> and they dance. Um, anyway. Yeah, if, you, um, if you're going to be introduced to Judaism, Simcha Torah is a good day to walk into shul. Right. Even, <laughs> even after, the, even right. after uh, the Holocaust. Now, fast forward. Uh, many years later, I, um, I'm speaking, I'm at Yad Vashem, and I am addressing a group of um, Israeli soldiers from Sahal and telling my story. And um, a professional in the audience is a young lady, Rabbi Schoenfeld's daughter, who was working at Yad Vashem, sure. right. Fabian Schoenfeld's daughter. Right. And she approached me and she said to me, Mr. Foxman, you talk about the soldier. Do you know where he is? You know, I said, I have no idea. I said, but I have a feeling that he is alive somewhere because somebody sent me this song <laughs> as that you're talking about, the yep. boy from Bill, right. which means that somebody else is telling my story. Right. So, and I, you know, I don't know. Anyway, make a long story short, a year later, she called and she said, I found him. Uh, he's a rabbi now. He lives in, uh, in Detroit. And um, I had this course um, to go, and we uh, we reunited. Um, he was elderly. He's now passed away. So I at least had the opportunity um, to, you know, to meet again. And uh, wow, from a Soviet officer <laughs> to a rabbi. Unbelievable. In Detroit with a wonderful family. Um, yeah. So, and and both of and both of you sitting there with incredible memories of Simchas Torah, nineteen forty-five. Yeah, and it's interesting because his family, when 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 I finally reconnected, said, you know, he would always tell the story, wow. but we weren't sure whether he was making it up <laughs> or it was true. It was apocryphal, and now we know that in fact it, it was true. It was on the front page of the Detroit News. The Detroit Free Press. It was a very beautiful moment, and there uh, and there are photos of that reunion online. People could search it and find it. I, be I believe it took place ten years ago, if I'm right. I think it was 2010. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, it, your parents and you come to America. What year? 
We came in 1950. We were in DP camps uh, for several years. That's another story. But yeah, and, and we, your father, we your father, by Hyatt and our rel- and some relatives that we have. And here. your father was employed as what in the United States? Uh, everything in the beginning, from a cutter to a cleaning a Pechter's bakery. Did you garage, did you start did you start here in the Lower East Side? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, we, yeah, we lived on Cannon Street. Sure. Wow. Yeah. I went, uh, I went to RJJ for a little time, and then we moved to Jersey on a chicken farm, and then to Brooklyn. So I went to Shiva Flatbush. But um, now, then my father eventually worked for YIVO, worked for Tsika, which is the Central Yiddish Culture Organization, in Yiddish books. He was a historian. He was a you know, folklore writer, um, etc. Um, yeah, so it, 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 the last thing that he did was sell Yiddish books. Wow. And what year did your parents pass away? Uh, my father in, passed away in 77, he, and my mother in um, 85. Wow. What an unbelievable story. Uh, Abe Foxman, everybody out there on this era of Tishabov, take advantage of a really well-organized campaign, as everything at Met Council is well-organized these days. Uh, to help Holocaust survivors, the Holocaust Survivor Initiative, information at metcouncil.org, metcouncil.org. They've made an amazing choice having Abe Foxman chair this campaign. Oh, by the way, I think I read, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, they're looking to make this not just local New York, but but national if possible to help Holocaust survivors and possibly yeah. possibly international yeah. if they could do it. Absolutely. But first we need, we'll start here right. and then we'll move. Understood, yeah. but they got there are a lot of efforts. There are efforts going on. We can coordinate it. We can work together, and and make it more effective. So I hope that that's and also the effort of of volunteers. Now is not the time. You know, right. Many volunteers are ready to right. do it. But originally, when we talked about it, we talked about uh, inspiring young people to reach out to the survivors. So it's not only uh, it'll be ruchnius and gashmius together. It'll be not only their needs, uh, which are physical needs of food, but also spiritual needs of connecting and, right. and, and caring and being reinforced. So that will have to wait till, till this magafa is over. MetCouncil.org for information, everybody. MetCouncil.org. Finally, Abe, um, tonight's Tishabov, and you and I focused you know, on one story, yours and your family, in, in what was such a tragic period for Jews, and you know that in general, young and old, uh, today and tomorrow, focus a lot on national tragedies of ours over the last many centuries. Any special message as we start, Tishabov? Anything you'd like to leave us with as you think back to what was and, and think of what we have now as a nation around the globe? Um, in every generation, they stand, we say, in, in the Haggadah every year, the Chalaseinu to destroy us. And I, I think Tishabov reminds us of all the tragedies, but at the same time, it reminds us and it teaches us uh, about our resiliency um, and our strength and our faith and our continuity and our togetherness. And so, yeah, I, I think the message is we need to be united. Yep. This is a, we live in a world of, of politicization, of dissension, of anger, and maybe maybe in this moment of of retrospection while we fast and and think about um, ourselves and who we are 
maybe that's a moment that will strengthen the unity of Am Yisrael. Uh, we can always use um, unity and, and, and care for each other. So it's always necessary, but maybe at this moment uh, we remember um, the tragedies we survived and that um, it will inspire us to be stronger together as one. Amen. Uh, we're going to do our best to uh, support the uh, the initiative for Holocaust survivors, metcouncil.org, and I cannot thank you enough for joining us this morning. Thank you so much, Abe Foxman. Thank you. And those of us who fast, a gringotonus and easy yes, fast. Yes, a gringotonus and easy fast is right. Thank you so much for that. Wednesday morning broadcast, JM and the AM. My thanks to Abe Foxman. A wonderful opportunity not only to speak about the Met Council Holocaust Initiative, Holocaust Survivor Initiative, I should say, uh, but in addition to that, to hear, to hear what one family went through during the war and how lucky they were to survive. And we know it's not luck. We know what it is, Hashgacha Pratis, but how lucky, in fact, they were to survive. And um, there were a lot of very, a reminder on this era of Tishabov just how many tragic stories there have been, not just in our history, but in recent history. And I thank Abe Foxman for helping us remember all that this morning here at JM and the AM. That was my conversation on Erev Tishabov with Abe Foxman. Well, recently we did our Yom NCSY annual show, and Alan Fagan, the Executive Vice President Emeritus of the OU, he reflected with us on the, some of the amazing accomplishments of the NCSY summer programs and how things look going forward. Alan Fagan was a recent guest on JMAM. Here he is on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. Um, one of the people who joins us every single year and uh, is with us in this unique mobile studio for a Yom NCSY show is Alan Fagan. He is the Executive Vice President Emeritus of the Orthodox Union. We had an opportunity to have a full-length, amazing conversation about his years at the OU, and it's a pleasure to welcome you back, Alan, to JM in the AM. Thank you very much, Malcolm. It's great, uh, great to be here without eating a bagel. <laughs> yeah, it's a challenge to walk in here and not have one. It certainly is. You uh, have over, uh, you, you've overseen for the last six years so many amazing things in so many different departments, a lot of stuff that you take great pride in. Um, but every year when you come on to talk about the staff and the uh, teenagers who are part of this incredible NCSY summer program experience, I don't think you have any more pride than you could have. What is it about this unique experience for almost 2,000 kids that makes it such a pride of the OU? Uh, it's, it's so difficult to talk about it this year <laughs> uh, when we can't be experiencing it uh, firsthand. You've been there. You've seen and felt the incredible energy that fills whatever stadium we use for Yom NCSY. And, and the beauty of it is it's the totality of the Jewish people coming together. It's kids from public school who can't tell an olive from a bays, and kids who are learning in the NCSY Kolel and in Michlelet, and they're all together. And they're all together filling a stadium, singing together, screaming together, uh, and, and just having a, a, a wonderful time celebrating who they are, what they are, celebrating the land of Israel. And please God, that's exactly where we're gonna be next year. Uh, doing the same thing that we've done uh, every year. Please, God is right. And what you just described, I should have mentioned this maybe with David on the air as well, what you just described 
is something that gets implemented in a really practical manner with some of the NCSY summer programs. What do I mean? You just described this incredible gathering of youth from all different types of Jewish backgrounds. Certainly, we could break it into public school and yeshiva, but it's even much more than that. You actually have programs, because we saw this and we experienced it, we broadcasted from Kolel, where there is a symbiotic relationship between Machina kids and Kolel kids, and where you think that every one of these programs is a separate entity, but when it comes to those, you see how the kids themselves, not just the advisors and counselors, the kids themselves are able to reach out and you know, have a relationship, an actual relationship beyond Yom NCSY with kids who are completely you know, from different backgrounds. Absolutely, and that's part of what makes NCSY such a magical uh, uh, place. It's, it's, it's a place for every Jew, and it's an opportunity for kids without background to come into contact with those that have had the privilege of having 12 years of a yeshiva education. And the same is true in reverse. Yeah. Kids that have that benefit, have had that benefit for their entire lives, then have the opportunity to use that experience that they've received, that wonderful, wonderful benefit that they've had, to be able to influence other kids who are still marching along their journey to discover their Yiddishkeit. Yeah, and parents don't realize just how much of a life-changing experience that is for the yeshiva kids. And as we always point out, for the public school kids, it's not just a life-changing experience for them. It's something they bring back to their families. And that's one of the reasons, frankly, and I said this to the birthright people also, it's one of the regrets I have that this is not really happening the way it should this summer. Obviously, you know, I understand why, and there's a higher reason for it. But one of the things that people forget, it's not just the sheer numbers. It's, just, it's just not just the 1900 and whatever that you would have attracted during this summer. It's the life-changing experience that it is for families in communities, Orthodox and non-Orthodox, around the entire country. The entire country, and, 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 and indeed, uh, uh, really throughout the world. Yeah. It's, it's a formative experience for, for the kids. I've, I've, I've often said that the, the NCSY Kolel and Michlelet is just a staging area for the future leaders of Klal Yisrael. Uh, and part of the education that they receive, part of the training that they need to have is to recognize that there's a whole world out there of Jewish souls waiting to discover their Yiddishkeit. Yep. And that's part of what they do when we, when we bring TJJ uh, uh, students uh, into the Kolel, into Michlelet, they're surrounded. They're surrounded by love, they're surrounded by warmth, uh, and they're surrounded by learning. Uh, and they see kids who are just like them, who, who, who dress the way they do, who go to the same sporting events that they enjoy. Uh, uh, they're teens. And, and, and all of the differences break down, uh, and, and all of the family of Israel unites. It's one of the things I honestly miss. I miss a lot of things about not doing this show from Israel this year. But one of the things I really miss, I love when the TJJ leaders address my most famous question of why a public school kid would want to do this during the summer. And then they describe how after two Shabbatot, these kids are completely, you know, have bought into their tradition and heritage, which is such an unbelievable thing that happens so quickly. And all the excitement that yeah, comes with it. No question about it. Alan Fagan is with us. He is the executive vice president emeritus at the OU with a lot to be proud of as we speak about the NCSY summer programs. Um, we always talk about the, uh, 
uh, the numbers. You've seen it grow over the years. Obviously, this year is one of great exception. But if you're listening the way we were just listening a few minutes ago to David Cutler, you know that the summer of 2021 will obviously, with the help of God, be a record breaker. I think the summer of 21 will be a record breaker. I have absolutely no doubt that if there's anybody on this planet who can pull that off, it's David Cutler. Uh, and uh, e even this summer, uh, I, I think what we had uh, worried about right. uh, in, in, in not being able to run uh, appropriate teen level programming has turned out to be uh, uh, as, as best as we could under the circumstances, really a spectacular uh, summer. What NCSY has done, what Yachat has done uh, in terms of putting together Project Community, right. uh, 3,000 teens participating all across the country uh, in Project Community, learning a little, playing a little, engaged in chesed uh, activities of all different types. Uh, so what, what could have been a complete wasteland yeah, it could have closed uh, up shop. A lot of people did, frankly. A, a lot did, and, and, and we felt a particular obligation to see to it that there was adequate programming available for as many teens as wanted to avail themselves of it. And as it turns out, that's, that's thousands. And hopefully we'll see many of them on summer programs uh, next summer. Did you know that Camp Sports has three teams from Poland last summer? I didn't know that until today. I didn't either. I mean, from Poland. And they come, and apparently they have no problem interacting with the American kids. And, you know, one of, your, one of the things you spoke about at your very beginning of your tenure was NCSY becoming truly global. Yeah. South America was a big piece of it. I think Central Europe, if I'm not mistaken, was a big piece of it. And now a growing, growing presence in Israel. And we didn't know how that would go. We didn't know if that would be something that the Israeli kids or the American kids in Israel or, or, or the two of them, how they would react to the formal NCSY type groups, events, and Shabbatonim that we're used to on this side of the world. Has it worked out well? It really was a tremendous uh, experiment, but it's been a fantastic uh, experiment. Uh, you put teens together right. with exciting role models that they want to be with. You put them together with their peers. Uh, you inject Torah into the atmosphere and you're going to see sparks fly. And that's true anywhere in the world. It's a, it's a formula that NCSY has now perfected in, in, in dozens of different uh, uh, arenas and it, and it works everywhere. I don't know if this is fair to ask you because I mean, it's something we did discuss a month ago when you were on the air, but now of course you're emeritus, so I don't know <laughs> to what degree you're following everything, but have the JLIC couples reached out and, and asked, you know, what do we do with such an unusual start to the campus year coming up in the United States? Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, JLIC is, is involved right now in Project Community. We have, uh. we have college, college age volunteers from uh, uh, JLIC campuses all participating. Uh, but this is going to be a function of campus by campus. There are some campuses that are opening, some right. that aren't. But even on the campuses that are not, it's remarkable to look at uh, the weekly reports of the JLIC educators, who they've reached out to, who they're learning with virtually, the programs that they're putting on virtually, and most importantly, the counseling that continues to take place one-on-one, -on -one, more necessary now than perhaps it ever was. Those reports are during the summer as well? During the summer and throughout the term, even wow. when, when kids were nowhere near campus. Right. The, the couples were reaching out to them. They were providing halakhic guidance. They were providing personal counseling. Those relationships don't break. 
uh, uh, even if there's physical distance. How many of those couples are former NCSY advisors, in your opinion? <laughs> a lot, right? I would, uh, I would, I would guess. I, I mean, don't know the answer. To but that. it has to be a significant percentage, right? Uh, maybe not, because really? a, no, a number of them are from Israel. Interesting. And, and so didn't sort of grow up through the... Uh, uh, through the NCSY right. uh, uh, system. My point being, of course, as I always discuss with you. But lots of the students that they're working right. with are certainly uh, uh, former NCSYers. NCSYers. I bring this up, of course, because I always point out to you that the talent that you are surrounded by in every generation, we know about the rabbis, and you have some amazing ones that are helping synagogue services right now and obviously help the conscious department constantly, and the next generation of leaders, the, the, that, that middle group that are now balabatim and very, very active. I get all that, but you know that in that group of advisors and counselors, the younger ones, 20s, 30s, etc., cetera, uh, there's just an immense amount of talent that you get to experience and see on a regular basis. Absolutely, and that gives us a particular responsibility to help shape and mold that incredible talent that passes through NCSY's doors every year. It's one of the things that I was, uh, I mean, I'm sure everybody was upset that there was no leadership Shabbaton this year for obvious reasons, but one of the things I love, I love about being there is just seeing how incredible the talent level is in the organization and it seems that as you know people get older and and become more involved more young you know those who are younger come in and take their place and start out and and you know end up sprouting forth uh, you know their own great talents it, it's it's remarkable if you look to see how many of our educators in in all of our yeshivas and day schools how many shul presidents, how many shul rabbis right. will tell you about the NCSY chapter that they belonged to when they were teens? Uh, it's, it's, when, when, when I talk about Kolel and Michlelet being a gateway to Jewish leadership, it's exactly what it is. That's where they end up. A good percentage of them are in the... And by the way, those who end up in professional jobs are also involved as lay people in shuls, organizations, Etc. Etc. As as we've gotten used to over the years, um, I thank you so much for joining us. My Happy Yomensius Y. I must say, much easier to hear you this year than when we try to hear you with the music <laughs> in sure. the background. But for nonetheless, sure. this sure. has been a very nice experience. But I am looking forward to next year. I believe David said July the nineteenth. I am looking forward to next year. So let's make each other a promise. Yes, uh, please, Nahum, please. That. that uh, Notwithstanding my emeritus status, <laughs> let's meet next year at Yom NCSY in Israel, surrounded by thousands and thousands of teens, the same excitement that we've always had. Amen. I hope that the, that certainly comes true, and I look forward to being there with you. And thank you very much, Alan. Thank you. Much appreciated. A big thank you to Alan Fagan. A big thank you to uh, David Cutler. Big thank you to Craig Goldstein, everybody who works with us at the OU. We have had a great relationship, and we have been prideful, full of pride, to bring you the uh, incredible accomplishments of NCSY and other OU uh, divisions um, for many, many years. Uh, and I do remind you that uh, we always give credit to our chairman of uh, the Jewish Unity Initiative. It's something that uh, um, has been very important to us, and Simon Jacob has been such an important person as chairman. But when... when Certain Jewish Union initiatives had to take place, specifically uh, Houston, Atlanta, Pittsburgh. Uh, the OU, under the direction of Alan Fagan, was always there for us to partner with Simon and our great supporters to bring uh, our program to communities that we would never hear about or hear from if not for this show. And it's something I will not forget.
That was my conversation with Alan Fagan during our YOM NCSY 2020 show. Thanks so much for tuning in. JM Rewind every single week here on NSN, and I recommend you keep it right here for great programming at the Nahum Siegel Network.